curious minds, welcome to season one of Mentorless Podcast, a show where I deconstruct the creative process behind the making of a film. I look at the creative and tactical steps my guests took from having an idea to releasing their finished project into the world. I'm your host, Nathalie Sejean, and in today's episode, I talk with American filmmaker and visual artist Elizabeth Subrin about the making of her first feature film, A Woman Apart. We cover a lot of important and inspiring topics. How Elizabeth convinced her producer to get on board, the cool pitch she gave Maggie Sif to offer her the lead role while they were still looking for financing, the reality of selling and distributing a feminist film, and the many lessons she's taking with her for her next project. Elizabeth's determination to make her film was so infectious I personally got inspired to reach out to an actress I had in mind for my feature film and convince her to play in the short film we are now shooting as a proof of concept. If it were not for Elizabeth's story, I believe I would have waited until I had more and missed a big opportunity out of fear of being rejected for not having enough. Don't forget to subscribe via your favorite podcast app. You just need to search for Mentorless Podcast and click on the subscribe button. And if you like the show, consider rating it. It really helps. Enjoy the ride, and I'll see you on the other side. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I'm very happy to be talking with you today. You are an artist, a filmmaker. You have uh, you do multiple work. So when I went on your website, it's written Elizabeth Subrin is a New York-based filmmaker, screenwriter, and visual artist who creates conceptually-driven projects in film, video, photography, and installation. As your bio suggests, you create on many mediums, but today we're specifically going to focus on the making of what is your first feature film, named A Woman Slash Apart. So my first question is going to be, can you tell us what first triggered the idea for what became a woman apart and the context you were in at the time? Absolutely. Um, I always take a deep breath because I think it's interesting how this project came about, but the, um, the film, which is about a burnt out television actress who leaves a toxic industry and tries to reinvent herself that's a story I never, ever thought that I would tell. And telling a story about an actress was never in a million years something I thought I would do. So the way I got there was that in 2003, I went to the Sundance Institute, which is a U.S.-based lab at Sundance, where you get to workshop your feature film first as a screenplay. And then if you go through that program, you can apply as a director. And so I had spent, I spent much of the 2000s learning how to write screenplays after having been an avant-garde filmmaker and experimental, you know, video artist for all of my adult life. And so making the transition into screenwriting and thinking about narrative directing was a really big one for me, but I got completely hooked and passionate about it and put aside a lot of my visual art practice to really focus on learning the craft of narrative screenwriting and directing. 
And um, so I worked really, really hard on the script for quite a few years, which was about a um, bipolar photo archivist who got swept up into the dot-com world right before the dot-com bust in 2000. So kind of the arc between her mental illness and... Um, and the U.S. economy right before the war, et cetera, and you know, a personal story set against larger political and social issues. But anyway, the bottom line is the film was too expensive to make. It was probably about a five million dollar budget. I had Academy Award nominated actress Rachel Griffiths attached. I had Harold and Kumar. That movie franchise is Cal Penn attached. But I was a first-time director with a body of experimental films to show, and just no one was going to give me $5 million to make a feminist film with someone they would never heard of. So I pretty much gave up, especially right around 2008 when the stock market crashed. Ironically, I gave up making a film about the stock market crashing and um, went back to the art world, made installations, et cetera, as you said. But my producer, whose name is Scott McCauley, who's very well known in the U.S. because he's the editor of Filmmaker Magazine. He has produced films like Casting John Bonet and Idlewild and Harmony Corrine's Gummo, etc. He was he was very dedicated to the project, and he said, "You've got to just write a lower budget film." And he, I mean, he was wonderful because he could tell that I, I, as much as I moved on, I was still really sad that I had learned this whole new craft. I was self-taught other than those five weeks at Sundance. I'd done a lot of studying, directing, doing directing workshops, working on draft after draft after draft for years to spend all that time and not see the film made was kind of devastating. So my first thing that I did was I tried to work with the original script and be like, okay, why can't I make an experimental version of this? You know, like I've made all these experimental films, there must be a way to figure out how to do this. So I created this narrative about an actress who comes to New York to be in this film, the dot-com bipolar photo archivist film, but the whole story is played out in like, table readings, you know, black box theater rehearsals, people talking about it. And it had a really radical structure where like the first half was just the actress's experiences alone in the city. So her coming in and out of her apartment, her walking around the city, dealing with her emotional life in crisis. Then the film starts over again, and it's all the scenes where they're working on the film. So it got very, very complicated. And at a certain point, the actress story kind of started rising to the surface, and the old script started falling away. And I realized that in this, in the plot of this film about a burnt-out actress who was suffering from recovering from autoimmune diseases and mid just a fully midlife crisis film that I was really pouring myself into that character. And so I ended up with a script that was about her. And I kind of built the plot around those ideas of what it means to leave an industry, leave a career, leave a life and try and reinvent yourself 
which is, I think, a fantasy that I had at that time. Like, what would it mean to walk away from my life? I've always been interested in people who radically transform themselves, whether it's like fascinating, healthy, or problematic, and, you know, everything from just problematic to criminal. So I've never figured out a way to explain that in a short version. When you realized the, everything was changing and uh, it was this new screenplay, since you already had a producer, then Scott was already on board for the previous film. That didn't happen. What was your next step uh, with your producer? Did you did he say right away he was going to follow you through this one? And, and first, maybe you can tell us how you got your uh, Scott as a producer for your first screenplay, since it was your first feature film. Absolutely. So Scott and I knew who each other were. He had he he had uh, assigned a review of an earlier film of mine years and years ago. We had run into each other at film festivals and been introduced. Um, and then at the Sundance Labs, after the directing lab, there's a producers labs where producers come. There are panels, all that kind of typical lab stuff. And then there's also meetings set up and producers read your scripts and can sit down and have a meeting with you kind of as an advisor. And it's also a little bit of a, you know, speed date or something. And Scott and I met and he was interested in the script, but Scott is very, very careful about the projects he takes in, um, he's, When he's in, he's all in to a degree that is staggering, which I think is why it takes some time to make a decision. So, you know, we met, I went and I was still trying to get that film financed. And I went to a ton of meetings and and people were not interested in making this film. They basically were like, we don't, this is the first film, the bipolar photo archivist film. And they were like, we don't know how to finance this thing. We don't, you know whatever. And, um, but I got Rachel Griffiths attached to it. And after Scott had come to a reading of it in New York, that was a really great event. And Todd Haynes introduced it and there was a lot of support. And I think he really saw the film was in a different place when I did the reading. And then when I came to him and I was like, look, Rachel Griffiths is attached now. And I had done that on my own. He got more interested and Then when we met and he gave me notes, he said, "Uh, I have a lot of notes for you, but it's going to make the film less commercial. And he also said, like, look, are we talking about, uh, you know, Red Desert or a woman under the influence? Referring to the tone of the film. And both of those are two of my favorite films. And between those two sentences, I was like, this man has to be my producer. There is no other producer I want. And then I was very aggressive about courting him. And I think that getting Rachel was the thing that really uh, finally, and a deadline I gave him, finally pushed him into gear. And right after that, we went to Rotterdam Cinemart to try and get financing. And it just worked well. And I think that's why we remained friends between projects. And he always... He always said that he wanted to make a film with me, and I I feel incredibly lucky because I know how rare it is to have a producer that's that dedicated, especially for a first-time feature director making a feminist film that's like arty and um, a non-genre film. 
it's a tough sell. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. So how do you how do you aggressively court a producer? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, if I was someone else, I probably wouldn't say things like this. But what I did with Scott is, I mean, you have to play a little hard to get. So I would act really casual with him. And I did take a lot of other meetings. But um, I just, I would stay in touch with him. And I kind of let him know every time something good happened with the project. And then finally, and I only told him I did this recently, but I finally, and but like really no one I was interested in, like this was a time when I was dealing with this and we're talking about my first film. So we're talking mid two thousands. At this point, there were still a lot of production companies that were big indie things like, you know, for example, IFC was producing films. That's all gone. But at that time I was meeting with people, my script was getting coverage, but nothing was happening. And I was like, not only I like, I want Scott and I can't keep going round and round with producers anymore and getting notes and writing different drafts to accommodate different things. And so I just called Scott and I said, look, I've got a few offers. I need to know by New Year's, which was a lie. It was a way to show your limits, basically, uh, to say I need to, because it's very hard. Uh, producers can be non-committing sometimes. They show interest, but they don't really engage into supporting you. And I, I, I've, I've been in this situation and I know the feeling that you feel a bit hopeful and at the same time, it's not really helpful. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've heard, you know, like at places like Amazon and Netflix, they probably have like, what, a hundred to one ratio with projects in development, or maybe like, you know, 10 to one between what's in development and what will actually get made, you know, and or, or much worse, actually. And So I get it. Like I totally get. And now that I've been through the fire with Scott and I've seen how hellish it is to make a no budget film in America, um, especially if it's ambitious and it's made, it's an adult story. It's not like a mumblecore thing. I would be extremely commitment phobic myself. So you, you, you have this, draft that is the closest to this idea of a woman apart now yeah and is this a draft that came out easily or you went through many rewrites and how did you uh, what was the budget you estimated back then and what was your first like what was your step after saying okay this is actually going to be the the story we're going to push for now yeah I mean I think what I thought I was doing was making a film that would take place in one apartment And therefore would be super, super cheap. That was our idea. So like, let's make something dirt cheap and we're just going to be smart and creative about it. And I will keep the whole thing in one location. So not only didn't that happen, I mean, we have, I don't know, 40 locations or something, but the idea that I thought it would be easy to get an empty apartment to shoot in, in New York, that we could do whatever we wanted with for you know, three weeks was a joke to, I mean, I was clueless. That's like the hardest, like real estate is the most impossible thing to get in New York. And there's absolutely no motivation for a uh, landlord to give you an apartment for three weeks. 
that you could just kind of destroy. So that was stupid to begin with, but then the the $100,000 like micro budget thing, you know, not even micro, no budget thing as I wrote the script. And I, I think I had the idea in the summer of 2011 and we shot in June of 2015. So that's four years. And because I teach full time, the majority of the intensive writing were during Christmas break between semesters and in the summers. So I would say I really wrote the script, uh, you know, summer of 2012, summer of 2013, summer of 2014. And, uh, what happened once we started thinking the script was ready, the first thing we did is hired a designer to kind of create kind of title treatment and a look for us so that we knew at every step of like, you know, low budget production, the design and look of the film would be consistent. And we also started to set up a presence on social media. Scott had been telling me probably starting in like 2012 that I should be on all platforms and tweeting all the time, which I didn't do. I just was casual about that. But he also encouraged me to start some sort of Tumblr blog that could be something to also generate an audience. And I created a blog called Who Cares About Actresses? And the title of that was based on the question I got constantly when I was trying to get financing. And the blog became a way for me to really think in kind of an intersectional, both sides of the lens way about women in the industry. So it started really as kind of like missionary zeal defense in defense of actresses. And it became a much bigger blog about female representation in the media, both in terms of how they're portrayed and how women actually exist in the media. And the blog got reviewed really quickly in film comment, which gave it a bigger presence than we had expected. So I had interns working on it. And it was also a great way for me to kind of put my politics and my passion about more political issues around feminism, about women in the industry, basically about every single issue that now everybody's talking about. We were ranting about in my blog starting in, I don't know, 2013 or something. And do you feel developing a Twitter account, even if casual, it still takes a little bit of time, and especially the Tumblr, I'm guessing this took much more time. Do you feel it had an impact on starting to build an audience? Because I guess that was the first motivation to build awareness about your movie and maybe have a possible audience for later. Absolutely. Like, I think that I wish I had actually started it two years earlier, because especially on a platform like Tumblr, you can have a lot of people like, you know, a thousand people like your post because it gets reblogged over and over and over. But to get like, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 100, 200,000 followers really takes a long, long time unless you're a celebrity or unless it's such a niche thing that people are starving for. Like, uh, maybe I'm thinking of something that blew up overnight. Like, um, a friend of mine who started an Instagram called Herstory, which was basically a picture archives of gay lesbian media 
from the 80s and 90s. And that just exploded overnight because people were starving for that. Something like this, which is so political and feminist and uh, niche, like who cares about actresses, that took much longer to build. But it's it kind of served two purposes is because even if it didn't have, you know, 50,000 followers, it really created an identity for the project and a framing for the project that was quite useful. But there was another thing that I did that was also, I think, incredibly effective, which is we knew we wanted to create some kind of image book, you know, like a website that was an image book for financers to look at. And I flew out to LA and decided to shoot the, I decided before going to LA, I was like, I'm going to recreate, I'm going to shoot and still photographs the scene where my actress throws like a hundred scripts in the swimming pool that she's reading, strung out on Ritalin and reading all these scripts and they all end up in the swimming pool. Cause I had a very specific visual sense of this, like Ophelia, like drowning in a script, a pool of scripts. And so I asked a friend to shoot for me and his wife who ended up looking a lot like Maggie Siff to stand in as the actress in the pool. And I had a friend's swimming pool to borrow and we literally threw a hundred scripts in the pool and did a whole photo shoot. And then I also did a, a photo shoot with a friend in an empty apartment in New York. And we used those as kind of m pictures that were both already on our Facebook page, but also for the lookbook, instead of just pulling stuff off the web. And that had a huge impact. Like at the time, Scott really thought it was overkill. But literally, to give you an example, one of the main equipment houses in New York, Abel Cine, saw the images on Facebook and contacted us and we ended up getting an incredible camera package both in New York and in Los Angeles where we shot the film in um in both New York and LA so that was that was exclusively because of the images I shot in that swimming pool which I just you know I spent my own money I flew out there I stayed at my friend's place and we did it You shared them on the on a Facebook page you had you had yeah. created for the movie or your personal Facebook page. We had a Facebook page for the film probably like three years before the film came out. And uh, you managed to get some um, to keep it alive to share content. Yeah, and I think the majority of uh, my demographic was reading it on Facebook, reading all the art, and we were writing substantive articles. Like it really should have been its own blog, but. Um, I felt like with Tumblr, we had the opportunity to draw in audiences that probably wouldn't get to my blog. So, and it just was easier. I thought it was going to be a more picture thing, but it came, became actual like full on essays and articles that we wrote and commissioned besides images. The, the, the last question I have about this particular section, and then we'll go back onto the uh, motion of making the movie, but I'm just wondering, did you have anything on the Tumblr or on the Facebook page or on something else, I don't know, to retain people's uh, email address, like to build a mailing list? No, but there are ways to do that, thanks to Facebook's problematic. I don't even know how I do this. This is something that a social media person helped us do, but you can basically, because everybody has their emails on Facebook, 
and I hope they've changed this by now, but you could, you can basically export an email list of all your friends' email addresses. So in a way, you had an email list ultimately that you could uh, use to email people about uh, screenings or if you did a crowdfunding. Totally, or exactly. Like that. And you know, we did have a mailing list too, but I think probably total there were a couple hundred people on our mailing list, whereas our our big email blasts were like to 4,000 people. So to go back to uh, the making of the film, in 2014, you have pretty much what the screenplay is going to be. You already have been playing on social media to build an audience. At that moment, how much money are you looking for for the movie? You know, I think that we were starting to budget it at that point at like the mid 300s. So we were still having this fantasy, maybe like around 300. Um, The ultimate budget ultimately was about 430, but I think we were still trying to keep it below 300. I mean, it's all kind of foggy in terms of exact numbers. Was it hard to, to find this uh, amount? Oh my God, it was devastatingly hard. Can you, can you, because ultimately without money, you cannot do anything. And it's a little bit of the Ouroboros, right? The snake that eats its own tail. You need uh, money to convince people to come on board usually and uh, to get money you need to have people on board so how did the process unlocked well there are a few things that happened one is kind of a miracle which has to do with casting right before i went to la we were still trying to build lists of people that we would want to uh have play the protagonist the actress and in my experience from the dot-com movie It's really smart to try and attach those people yourself before going to a casting director. I feel like the direct relationship is is really effective. And once you have that first person attached, then other actors are going to be much more receptive. You know, like, oh, we have so-and-so attached. So I this legitimizes the project in one way or another. So um, I had not known who Maggie Siff was, but I knew a, the type of woman that I was looking for. And I knew they had to emanate a really intense intelligence. And because there's so many biases against actresses and most of them are not complimentary. And so a friend and I were like playing the game. That's always fun to play. Like who should we cast? And most of the like likely names that would easily get you a budget or somewhat more easily get you at least a half a million dollar budget or something. None of them felt right for the part. And at one point my friends and I were like, who was that woman in Mad Men in the first season of Mad Men who was so good, the Jewish department store heiress. And I looked her up. I was like, what's Sons of Anarchy? Like this other TV show she was on. And the more I read about Maggie, the more I knew that if she got an offer to do this, she would take it. And to make a really kind of uh, magical story really short, when I was running around in LA to do this photo shoot, I needed a ton of scripts. They're actually hard to procure as a prop because nobody reads paper anymore. And I was like, I was like, I'm not flying a hundred scripts to Hollywood. Like I'm going to get them. But then actually it was really hard. And so I was racing around between Silver Lake and Beverly Hills and going to my old Sundance advisors and like trolling, like, you know, like I had shadowed on the set of Transparent for a day. And I asked Andrea Sperling if she could, she had any scripts running around. Like I was just scrounging everywhere. And I was, I was like, 
really kind of stressed out and nervous. And I decided to go to a yoga class and I signed in to the class. And then I heard Maggie's name and it turned out she was taking the class. And so I basically made a pitch right there. And after the class, we talked for like two hours and she actually followed up with me a few weeks later. I like sent her images from the photo shoot, but then I kind of stalled because I wanted to make sure the script was totally perfect, but I sent it to her. So basically she was attached. God, was it, it might've been 2013. She was attached at least a year and a half before we shot. So that helped get financing. Maggie's name was not well known then, unless you were a Sons of Anarchy fan, which was not really the people we were talking to at production companies. But then when but she is known within casting circles and with within directors and actors know her great talent. And so by choosing Maggie at that point in her career before she was on this TV show Billions, um, which has become so popular, it wasn't a choice to use an actress to get us the budget, but it was a step towards being like, this is what we're doing. This is who the star is. We're really serious about this and let's go. I have a little follow-up question about your meeting with Mike. I have two questions, actually. The first one, and I hope you maybe you won't remember, but uh, if you do, it would be great. Um, Before you met her in the classroom, in the class, did you have an idea on how you were going to reach out to her? Yeah, totally. I knew Maggie was with Paradigm and I knew that that, you know, it's, it wouldn't, Scott knew people that we knew it wouldn't be a hard offer. And I knew that Maggie had never gone, been a lead in a movie. She, she had never carried a film. I knew from reading about her politics and her ideas about the world that she'd be receptive to the project. So I wasn't worried about getting it to her. I also suspected that she was pregnant or was planning on getting pregnant soon because she was 40 and had just gotten married. So, and she did reveal that to me. She was like, I do need to tell you something at that first meeting. I was like, you're pregnant. But that was actually great because in that year of development, she didn't have a lot going on. So I flew out to LA often to work with her, talk to her about the script. So yeah, we, I just, we knew we'd make an offer to Paradigm. I'd write a letter and I, I did not have any doubts that it would get to her, but meeting her in a yoga class saved probably like five months. Yeah. Because, you know, the script has to get covered and then it goes to an agent, then the agent sends it to a manager, then Maggie needs to read it. You know, it, it, it's a lot of time. And uh, my other question was, do you remember, because, you know, to me, it's always the worst and the hardest things to quote someone who is in their daily lives when they are off duty, in a way, and you are walking up to them and you are asking them, or not, I don't know if it's asking them what you did, but it's just, you know, You're talking to her because she's an actress. You're not talking to her just because she's a person taking a yoga class with you. So it's always right. dedicate to find the right words, not to turn people up. Actually, like in your movie, you know, she gets interrupted all the times by people exactly. who want something yeah. from her. And um, so do you remember the words you said, oh, yeah. the opening line? Totally. I said... And they weren't the best lines either, but I said, it was so shocking that I've been thinking about this person 
like for two weeks and reading everything about her, having never even known who she was beforehand. And that the like serendipity of that was so I looked at her and I didn't recognize her because her hair was cut differently and she was wearing yoga clothes and no makeup and I just turned to her and I was like, you're Maggie Siff, like almost just in disbelief. And she said very sweetly, yes. And I, then I said, oh my God, I just need to say, I have been reading about you and thinking about you and talking about you a ton in the last two weeks. And then I realized that sounded like a stalker and I had to kind of pull back and kind of throw, like pull out my resume really quickly so that she knew that I was legitimate. So I was like, I'm a director. I went to the Sundance Labs. I've made a lot of films. I'm working with a producer who's made these films. We have a script. Uh, it's really amazing. We were planning on sending it to Paradigm. I, is there any chance after this class you could talk for like 10 minutes? Okay, so you asked her to for 10 minutes afterwards. Yeah, and what was really lucky is so we got out of the class and I mean... I had like that whole class to think about exactly how I would talk to her, but I knew that like I needed it to be more than 10 minutes. And so we got to the class and she's looking around for like a place we could just stand. And it was so crowded in the area. She was like, okay, well let's just go to the cafe next door, which is exactly what I wanted. And we ended up sitting there for several hours. So It was meant to be. Yeah. That's a really nice story. But you seized the opportunity as well, which is, uh, you know, very nice. So a question about funding I have is that at this, at this stage when you got Maggie and you were still looking for financing, did you consider doing a crowdfunding campaign? We did do one, but we didn't do it until we did it for post-production. Okay. This was a decision you made in advance or it's, it's towards the end you realized you needed to run one? It was like something we knew we were going to do and we just kept pushing it further away. Like we should do this right now. We don't have time or we should do this right now. It's not a good month. You know, people always say, don't do it this month and we should do it right now. I can't, I'm in the middle of my semester. You know, like if you're going to do one, you basically have to start planning for it about three months in advance at the least to it's, it really is like producing a film to produce a Kickstarter. So, I mean, the thing that really pushed us into high gear was that Maggie's pilot for this TV show, Billions, where she stars across from Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis, this Showtime show, it got picked up. And we knew they were starting production in August of 2015. And so there was no like kind of, mm, let's casually go to production companies and you know, send it around everywhere. Like we had been doing that and getting rejected left and right because who cares about actresses? And, you know, some major people thought about it, but ultimately we kept being told we don't know how to market this film. So when we, Scott was basically like, okay, we can recast, we can push a year or we can go for it right now, even though we don't have the money. And I felt like, given the story I told you about the other script I had done, I thought I would lose my mind if I waited any longer. And it felt really unfair to recast, given that Maggie and I had spent like a year and a half talking about the film. And so 
we decided to go for it. And at that point, it, it was almost like I'm, I've always been like a very assertive person and I'm not scared to ask for things. But this really pushed us into very high gear. And because no big production company was ready to finance the whole thing or like a place like Game Changer or Cinereach or these other, you know, United States based companies that support independent film. We had to look for private investors. And so the entire budget was comprised of investments between $5,000 and the biggest one was $50,000. So we got a few that were at $25,000. We got other ones that were at 50, we got a ton of ones that were five or $10,000. And those were just direct asks over and over and over again for the smaller ones. And then we got a loan that, a private loan that we knew would be paid back through the New York state film tax. So, but that's, that meant somebody was going to be waiting for several years to get their money back. So that's, that was just personal luck of someone caring about the project. In a few months or something like that, you managed to gather all these private investments? Yeah, between uh, probably mid-March and mid-May. And at that moment, did you have already, did you have your cinematographer and, you know, all the key members for your crew? We did not have key members. We, we attached a cinematographer Around, We started doing that all at that time. I mean, the first thing was that Scott knew that he needed a producing partner because he hadn't produced a film at this low budget for a long, long, long time. So we invited this guy, Shrihari Sate, who's both a director and a producer, to join us. He had been interested in working with Scott, and they made a really amazing pair. Shri is probably early 30s. And Scott is early 50s. So, and Shri had come out of both uh, the producing MFA program at Columbia and the directing program. And he also had access to international private investors. He brought in some money and he started working with us. But the other than that, the most of the money raised was Scott and I literally pounding the pavement. And it was scary. Like we had a spreadsheet, we watched the numbers go up and we knew we had to, at a certain day, especially for Maggie, we had to say, yes, we're doing it. So then we attached line producers and, you know, like the average crew age for department heads was definitely under 30 for everyone involved. Like our gaffer was 22. She had just graduated from NYU and she was brilliant. And our line producer and UPM were both early 20s. And we just got incredibly talented people, probably because of Scott's reputation and because people were drawn to the script. And we got very lucky. How did you pick, how did you decide on your um, cinematographers? I didn't even have time to think about things like that. Like I should have been sitting around like watching films and being like, okay, who made this? I want to work with this. I mean, I wanted to work with as many women as possible. And when we hired the line producer, I basically said, I won't make this film without gender parity. And also in terms of the racial composition of the whole team, I want diversity there. And our line producer was an Asian American woman. 
our UPM was an African-American woman, and they did an amazing job at honoring that request, And as did our casting director for talent. So in terms of the cinematographer, Scott said he had an idea for someone that he thought I would respond to. And it turned out I, and it turned out he had brought me to see a film, this, a rough cut of a film this guy had shot, Chris Dapkins, a year before. And I think he had it in the back of his mind then. But then I looked at his films and Chris Dapkins comes from a documentary and avant-garde background and had only done experimental narrative films, but they were so it so gorgeous and he understood the script so well and even though the script has much more conventional coverage and a more conventional production style than anything he had worked on I just was like, this is not rocket science. He's going to know how to read a call sheet and how to break down a scene and do this. So he was attached about two months in advance. And we spent a lot of time together while I was raising money. I was luckily on sabbatical, so I wasn't teaching that year. I was going to ask you, so you took a... You took a sabbatical before knowing you were going to shoot that year. Yeah, I mean, my goal was that I was going to shoot that year. But what's wild is that my sabbatical started in August of 2014, and we didn't wrap until August of 2015. And I had to go back to school in late August. So, no, I guess we wrapped in July. So a month later, I went back to teaching. So it was really at the last minute of my sabbatical that we finally shot. So I did post-production, Kickstarter, premieres, everything while teaching full-time. Wow. So we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that point, but I'm curious about how did you prep for your film? You're talking about the fact that you spend a lot of time with your cinematographer. I know you You were also in contact with Maggie since she's been on board for so long. Did you watch movies? Did you, is there books that uh, were particularly um, important to help you prepare? Because it was your first feature narrative feature at the end of the day, no? Absolutely. So in terms of the cinematographer with Chris, we would hang out and go through the script and I would basically act it out for him. So we'd go sit in a park and I would act it out and we'd make drawings of how we wanted it to look. But I think we kind of made the the team like Scott and Shri and the line producers nervous because we weren't doing traditional storyboards. You know, both of us come from this you know, experimental background. So at a certain point, I think they were starting, we were making them a little nervous because we weren't, you know, showing up in advance with like traditional boards. But um, we watched a lot of movies. We talked a lot. I acted things out. We drew frames. We kind of created a vision formally of how we wanted the film to be designed. And so that's how I did that. My biggest fear was I knew that the film production was going to move really fast. It was an 18-day shoot. We weren't going to have rehearsals, which was the one thing I said I wanted, but did not end up in the budget. And so I knew that I had to know the script incredibly well, and which is why I spent so many years writing it. And I also needed to feel like safe on set. And so one of the ways I did that is that I wrote one of the 
parts, the part of Kate, one of her two best friends that she returns to New York to try and connect with, her name is Kara Seymour. And Kara is a brilliant actress that I had made a short narrative film with. And I wrote the part for her. And even though the character is a gay Buddhist alcoholic who's walked away from her acting career, none of which is Kara, I wrote the part with Kara in mind. And so that meant that I had two of the three principals on set were people that I worked with. And that made me feel really safe on set. And um, I think that was, I think that and all the directing actors workshops I had taken over the years, I had taken classes with Judith Weston, who wrote the book Directing Actors, which is an incredible book for learning how to direct actors. I worked with Joan Shekel, who's the directing coach for Transparent and also uh, was on set for um, Little Miss Sunshine and Whale Rider, who's also LA-based. And then this incredible directing coach in New York called uh, named Adrian Weiss. And I had taken work, because I didn't go to film school, I took, a, over the years, I took a lot of workshops. So I felt, I, I felt scared, but I, I felt like, I felt like I could do it. And you did. I want to ask you about, I mean, I guess you kind of hinted at it, but is there a thing during your time on set while you were shooting that uh, retrospectively you feel you should have fought uh, harder for? Yeah, I mean, I think I think absolutely that rehearsals were, I mean, I think I got amazingly lucky with performances and I worked fast on my feet, but that, and I feel like I wish, I mean, we were really shooting at a very small shooting ratio. I just wish I had more time for each scene, especially because it was 18 days in two cities. And in LA, we did not know the crew. I mean, we they were pretty much hired on Skype. So my first three days of ever working on a narrative film, a feature, were with people I had never met. You started shooting with, with the LA scenes first? Yes. Mm, okay, that should have been a bit scary. I mean, I think that, yeah, I think the two things that looking back, I, I wanted more time also because I really did not sleep during that whole time because we were basically producing the film while we were shooting, meaning that all the prep that you would normally do with each department head where you'd sit down, they create books for you. You would, you know, have a lot of time to figure out or not even a lot, but sometime, like whether it's location scouting, discussing production design, you know, really going through every scene with the line producer, all of that stuff was happening while we were shooting or in the few, few days between LA and New York. So I was only sleeping. I know this sounds hyperbolic, but I was only sleeping about four or five hours a night. And it's one thing if like a 25 year old does this, but like, I was about to turn 50 and probably could have slept for seven hours a night. I just was like, I was not the person I was when I was 25. <laughs> But it's also one thing to sleep four hours for, let's say, three days. It's another thing to do it for 18 days. Um, so you've shot the, you finished shooting the movie at the end of July 2015. At the end of uh, August, you went back to work full-time yes. as a yeah. teacher, yeah. and you had to do post-production at the same time. Where was the post-production taking place? After we wrapped, we started interviewing editors. 
And it was a very similar situation where Scott had a gut feeling about someone. Um, and we, we met with a few and the third person we met with was her and her name is Jen Ruff. And she is like me that she came from an experimental and visual arts background. Then she, she trained at this post house with the great James Lyons, who edited all of Todd Haynes films and a bunch of other amazing films. And she worked with him. She basically assisted a bunch of really amazing directors, but then she started an academic career and started teaching at NYU. So she had made fewer films than other people we were looking at, but she also had such a amazing energy and such a understanding of the film and I knew I would be having to sit next to this person every single day because I've always edited all my films and there was no way I was going to leave them alone in the room. Like I knew I would be very, very heavily involved in post. And it, it just, I felt like it had to be a woman and it had to be someone who had a deep psychological understanding of human beings. And she was so perfect. So we did post-production. She did not have a, an assistant. We edited the film in her apartment in Brooklyn. And because we both taught, we only had three-day, three or four-day weeks. So we were both working several days on campus at different schools and then working the rest of the time on editing. So neither of us had days off. And... We only had budgeted, I think, 10 weeks of editing. So that was brutal, especially because I, I live in Brooklyn, New York, but I teach in Philadelphia. So I was commuting to teach Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I went to Phil I was in Philadelphia from Monday afternoon till Wednesday afternoon. And then I was at her place the rest of the week. Did you, do you feel you needed more time for this part as well? Of the yeah, when you asked me like what I would do differently, more than everything in post-production, like in production, I just wish I had slept more and we had more time for prep. Like it's just the way we did prep was not normal. We were, I mean, literally like John Ortiz was cast in LA while we were shooting the swimming pool sequence. Like, I mean, it was just it, the, the speed at which this happened is should receive an award. It was really, really incredible how it, I mean, Scott says he's never made a movie that between production and premiere was so short. I mean, because we wrapped that summer and premiered at Rotterdam in January. It's true that it's very short. So you, you were going to say that you wished you had more post-production time, I'm guessing? Yeah, and that was something, I was just thinking about that today. That was something that our young, wonderful uh, line producers did is they took money out of, they, you know, they took Scott's budget and then proposed theirs and they took money out of post and put it back into production. And now that I think about it, and this is so naive, I mean, obviously producers are going to put more, are going to be biased towards production as opposed to post, because they're kind of out of there by then. And that is my biggest regret with the film, is that we did not have more time for our post. I guess that and that I felt like we kept being pushed to get a cohesive cut together for different festival deadlines, which meant instead of ever having the possibility of 
ripping open the film and trying really radical changes and getting to sit on it for a little while and think we had to keep, we would start exploring things, but then a festival deadline would come up and we would be like, all right, we have to just put aside the experiments and make this a at least a somewhat comprehensible edit. Do you know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. To and that, totally makes sense. That made me completely bonkers. And that, I think that's the the deepest regret about the film is that I wish that I had more time to really explore all the possible ways of organizing the material and, and really radical things like what if we threw out the whole LA's chunk or what if whatever that that I'll never ever make that mistake again. It's interesting because um more and more I'm paying attention to in, in filmmakers' interviews about when they mention rehearsal time, reshoot, and uh, post-production time. And what I realize is that most of the time in articles, in um, making ups, you know, people always, always, always focus on the production. And this time is, is usually just a handful of weeks. And the rest is actually very crucial. And I, I've listened to um, to an interview uh, with Mike Mills, you know, who did 20th Century Woman. And uh, he was saying that, uh, A, he, I think for this movie, he had something like two or three weeks of rehearsal. But he also always scheduled two to three days of reshoot. And those three days usually make nine to ten minutes of, the, of his final uh, edit. And then I saw there was this comparison between all the different Oscar nominees this year and how long they spent in prep, in rehearsal, blah, blah, blah. And I saw that uh, for Lady Bird, like Lady Bird and Get Out, I think were shot in five weeks, both of them. But Lady Bird spent over a year in post. And I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm sure the year was not a full-time year in post, But time plays such an important uh, component, even resting time, resting time away from the project. And uh, I remember the, the, the editor of Mulholland Drive. Uh, I, I don't remember her name, but she, went, she was speaking and, in L.A. and she was saying that uh, one of the reasons why they could come up with Mulholland Drive after it got cancelled as a TV show was because I think one year passed between the moment they worked on the first edit and the moment they went on the second edit of the movie. And I found it fascinating because most of the time we don't mention these moments that are so important. Rehearsal, reshoot, and uh, and post. Post is so... Like, sound and post are, are always the, the dark uh, ducks, black ducks, and, and they are so essential. I, I completely agree. And the thing about reshoots is, like, you know, like... 20th century women, the budget was around 7 million and Lady Bird was 10 million. So we're talking about very different types of films. But I feel like as an artist and as a creative person, I can solve practically any problem in post if I have enough time to impost. Do you know what I mean? Like I never thought, oh man, if I could only shoot more scenes. It's, I threw out tons of scenes when we were in production as the reality of how long things take, especially with kids became more clear. You know, it was, it was insanely ambitious how much we wanted to shoot. 
I mean, we had days that were three company moves in one day. And moving around New York City is not easy. How long was the original screenplay? Sorry, how many pages? How many pages? I think it was about uh, about 100 pages, maybe 99 pages. Not so far from the final movie, actually. Yeah, except that there was a lot of visual details in it, which, of course, always take longer than the minute page thing. You didn't have enough time in post-production to play as much as you would uh, have wanted and could have probably. So you, you, you cut for the festival's deadline, right? Yeah, so we had to keep like pulling it together for festival deadlines. And that, that made me bonkers. And because even if it was like not time in front of the edit, I needed just time to look at the film and think about it, you know, and just to let my creative process have a little breathing room to try and solve problems or to think outside of the box, you know, and I, I, I think those things take time. What was the strategy? I don't know if you were involved in it. I'm guessing you were for the festival um, application. I'm sure you, you send it to Sundance and uh, all the big ones in America, maybe. Yeah, Sundance was a big fight because obviously every producer and investor is going to want you to submit to Sundance. But for a film that wraps in the summer and, you know, I just, I was adamant that we don't submit to Sundance. Like I was like, if I was Sundance, I would not accept this film. Um, because I just, because it wasn't ready and you couldn't see what the film was, but you know, Scott and tree had were producers and they, they were like, you have to try. And I was like, I don't want to, have in my head a rejection from Sundance when I know that it won't get into Sundance. But they won the fight. It was submitted to Sundance. It got rejected from Sundance. And that was that. And then there were certain festivals that I, I just, for whatever reason, didn't feel like the same match. And when we got into Rotterdam, we were like, okay, we because there's not that much press at Rotterdam, maybe this is not a good idea unless we're in the competition and the competition was only like six films. So we're not going to get in competition, but then we got in competition. So it was something we just couldn't refuse. And we did send it to Berlin, but Berlin wasn't ready to decide. And so we, you know, Scott talked to them and they were like, we don't haven't decided to take Rotterdam. So I think we probably would have gotten rejected from Berlin. And it wasn't like I was going to hold out for Cannes. I did not think this film would get into Cannes. So that was that was that for our premiere. And you went there? We all went. I mean, we all, all of us had shown films in Rotterdam before or had been in the market. So it felt like a kind of wonderful reunion. And they also, they treated us so well. I love that festival. Um, and because we were in the competition, we had like five screenings, these massive theaters, and it was fun. And so what did you do after Rotterdam? What was the next step for you guys finding, I'm guessing, finding a distributor? Well, one thing I want to say, because I think it's interesting for your podcast, is that we, I actually did a second sound mix and licensed more music after Rotterdam, which I think is pretty, un maybe it's not that unusual. It was not something that was planned. I put my own money into it because when I saw it projected, 
I didn't feel like the soundtrack had enough edge. And we also felt like it had been Maggie's voice had been mixed low. And we couldn't figure out why it was a technical thing, but it was just like, we have to remix it. And there was no money to do it. So I just paid for it. And which is not to, I mean, I put in my own money into the film and already, but I just was like, and we, I had to do that. So we remixed it. And we also, I licensed two more songs that I think really added a little more of the edge that I needed for the soundtrack. So, yeah, so we started looking for a distributor and it was exactly the same thing with financing. I, you know, the whole time I kept warning Scott and Shree, I was like, you do not understand this film is shot through a female consciousness. And I know it seems like, I mean, and you've seen the film, it doesn't have a radical formal structure. It's not like Holy Motors or something. And yet I was like, you cannot imagine the sexism that we're going to encounter with this movie. And I'll just give you one example of this. Okay, one of the people that we talked to about financing literally said to Scott, a story about a burnt out Hollywood actor who flies back to New York to try and recreate, reconnect with her authenticity through, you know, being in her local uh, avant-garde theater community and going back to like her theater roots. He said, the story of that middle-aged actress doing that is the last thing I would ever want to see. And Scott's response was, unless it's a little movie called Birdman. (laughs) And it's so true. It's the exact same plot. And I don't think it was until we, I mean, it was one thing to not get financing, like nobody can get financing. That's really hard. But when we started getting rejections from festivals, you know, we, we were in great festivals, but there are also a lot of festivals that we got rejected from that we thought were slam dunks. And it was really then that I started being aware that how challenging this film was. Cause if you cannot shift your subject position to a, not just a female protagonist, but a woman whose body is not being objectified who the emotional logic of the journey is a woman's point of view, then you can't read the film. And it wasn't until we got to that process where Shri and Scott, who both of them are not going to pull the woman card as an explanation for why things don't get in somewhere. At that point, they started to see that I was right, that we were going to encounter a lot of sexism with this film. What I find very interesting is that you you have two two men as producers so how do you how do you think how how can you explain that they understood i mean i i hope you feel they understood your 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 vision and what you were trying to do and i would have thought that as men it would have been easier for them to find the words to uh, reach out to you know the 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 ones who decide who usually are men as well yeah, I mean, I I feel like Scott understood the film very profoundly, and I think Shree did as well. So I wasn't in the room when Scott was making those pitches, but I had been to Cinemart with him, the market at Rotterdam, for the first film, and heard how he talked about my film, and I loved it. And so I know that Scott knew how to talk about the film and it was better coming from a guy than me. But 
you know, a lot of these times you're sending a script to your buddies at this company or that company or whatever. And he would read me what he got back from them and they would hate the actress character. And, you know, they would find the whole film indulgent or all of these things that was just telling us that they really didn't understand what the film was about. Like the character is a metaphor and, um, it's just so interesting because what's his name? Michael Keaton's character in uh, uh, Birdman. He's completely like a whining existential narcissist complaining, you know, tormented over really like first world champagne problems and nobody has a problem with it. I mean, it won best picture, you know, and with something like, our actress, you know, like people would be like, what's the problem? And it'd be like, do you notice that she's, you know, addicted to Ritalin, strung out, just had like treatment for autoimmune diseases, has like no relationship, no family, you know, is on a really sexist TV show. Is that not enough for you to understand what she's going through and to have empathy? But clearly it wasn't. It's funny because I'm having similar problems with my screenplay that has a female protagonist and several uh, secondary characters that are female. And there are men as well. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting so many worlds from a lot of them are, are men who, who feel that there's no men in the story. Once I had someone tell me that there's no men in the story. There are men, there are like five or six of them, but because none of them is, is, um, the lead, he really sincerely, and it's a script doctor, huh? he looked at me in the eyes and he said, there's no man in your story. <laughs> and also the fact that I'm getting the understanding that it's very hard for people. I mean, it's not just men. I, I think even I am right now understanding how, uh, you know, everything around me has educated me to perceive my gender in a certain way. And it's very hard for people to relate to women problem if her problem are not related to sexual violence or family trauma and uh, if it's more of an active woman and it's about her own personal growth I feel there is this reflection that then this character is selfish but not in a way that is acceptable for a male character you would accept that a man didn't take care of his kids or got drunk or cheated on his wife or you know uh, went to take cocaine every night but for a woman it just we're not uh, there yet kind of <laughs> i think that's incredibly articulate i i i absolutely that's so true i you know what i've said in other interviews which is of course sarcastic but i'm like if you want to make a film about a woman's consciousness, she has to have emerging female sexuality. And if you look at most successful first films by women with a female protagonist, I would put money on the fact that like 99% of them are about their sexuality unless male protagonist is a big part of the film. Like if it's about a young woman and her aging father, that's okay. But if it's just about a woman's journey, she has to be young. She has to be dealing with sexuality. It's just the way it goes. And and, and the funny 
point, I mean, to reinforce what you just said, is that in my story, because I want it to be a universal topic, just that the lead human is a woman, love is not the solution. Or is not the cause of trauma either, actually. Love is just not uh, the topic of my movie. So the topic of the movie is success. And, and that was the big shock to me that absolutely every man wanted me to put a love story in, you know, it, she could even be in love with a woman, basically, they told me. But she just need to have a love story because love is what makes you grow in the end and teaches you a lesson. And what I find very funny, is that even though, you know, I, I, I respect love and I think it does teach you a lot of things in life, a lot of us are not in love. Or I'm, I am in a relationship, so I don't even, uh, it's not like I'm against it or whatever, but it's just that, you know, there are many years of your life where you're going to be single, or even if you're not, you're not in love, and that's not what is going to impact your growth, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, But people just want a woman to go through uh, love transformation, and it's very, very interesting. I completely, no, I completely agree with you. And I, I was adamant that I did not want a love interest to solve the problem. And since in my film, this, this protagonist, Anna, the actress has had complex, perhaps romantic relationships with both her, both of her best friends that she was in this theater company with a man and a woman I, it was very hard to know where to end the film because I did not want her problems to be solved or not solved against her relationship with other people, these people. And, you know, I am, there's so many places where I dug my own grave because of my unwillingness to make a film that's what people want to see. And what's amazing is the film critically did really well. Like it's at, you know, for what it's worth, it's at 92% with all critics on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, it's on Netflix and Showtime, but in an economic sense, it tanked, you know, but it, it, I never expected the film to make money, but I did expect for it to get the kind of support that it deserves based on the critical reception. Because how long did it stay in did it stay in theater? It stayed in theaters much longer than I think our distributor expected it to. Its New York theatrical premiere was let's see March 22nd to April 13th, so about three and a half weeks. And it did well. It sold out a lot and it's because of they told us that they did not expect we would do more than New York. And our New York premiere was not through a distributor. I mean, we had the distributor then, but IFC in New York wanted the film early and they said they didn't care if we had a distributor or not, that they wanted to show it, which was wonderful. And then because of the success of the New York theatrical, we went to LA. But I have to say that the reason I think this film went well is because I again raised some money and hired a social media coordinator, or an, I guess we called her an outreach coordinator. And this is a, I would recommend this piece of advice, which is I don't really feel like the indie film world knows how to get to do an outreach campaign. It's really something that the doc world has figured out. And I think that's because they, you know, it's an issue campaign, you know, it's an awareness campaign, as they call it, which is people don't think about narrative films like that. But I, we hired a woman 
who uh, named Simone Perro, who actually is one of the producers on Jennifer Fox's film, The Tale. And she did an incredible outreach campaign with me, guiding me through the email blast we did, the outreach to every you know women's studies department, to every women film organization, to putting together amazing panels for the Q&As after the screenings, to all sorts of email blasts that were targeted to anything that was women related or actress related. And it was, it was like, it was like my Kickstarter campaign. It was an epic amount of work. And, but I was just like, I've gone this far with the film. I've worked for free for this many years. I'm not going to have this film not get seen. That's great, actually, because uh, that's really the moment where usually things just go down. <laughs> if you were to travel back to 2011, what wisdom you know now that would you share with uh, yourself? What is the wisdom you're taking with you on your next project that can, you can also see it like that? Um, a few things. I think one thing which is so obvious, and I feel like you kind of have to learn it, yourself over and over and over is that there were really magical, miraculous moments on set, but there were other moments where I didn't trust my instinct entirely, like where I would look at the DP or someone on set that I trusted and they'd be like, you got this in terms of a take and, or, oh my God, there, this is so incredible. But part of me was like, it's not, it's not exactly what I want, but that I have to navigate between not exhausting the, the cast and the crew or um, feeling the pressure of time. And that it's utterly essential that I don't just fight for the film in terms of making money and getting the film seen, but every single second I have to trust my instinct about if we're really done with the shot, if we, like, I, I mean, I, I fought a lot and I'm sure if Scott was here, he would be like, yeah, she fought a lot for her film, but I, I would even do more. And I also feel like, you know, I teach my students how to break down every scene, to have notes next to the scene, to have almost in their back pocket, like the Judith Weston action verbs for making adjustments. And I, most of that was in my head because I knew the script so well, which I think is the saving grace of fast production because I could very easily be in a, you know, we shot the last scene of the film on the first day of production. So I needed to know how to direct Maggie to really be in a space that she had no time to get into. She had to know where she was emotionally at the end of the film without having done anything. And if you know your script really well, you can kind of slide back and forth on the timeline of the film and be like, well, if you were at this place in the scene before, you need to be at this place in this scene. But I think if I had had, if I'm going to work in quick production, I, I just, I absolutely need to have more unexhausted prep time where I'm not also being the producer. and and more time with myself to like make sure that I can really sign off on everything in terms of what is happening on set. I think given the circumstances, we all did an amazing job, but I just, 
I won't do that again. And also, I have to say, more than the actual production, and even more than I said in post, I will never make a film again without a clear-cut vision for how this film is going to be promoted. Hmm. So what do you mean by that? I mean that it doesn't matter how good a film is if there isn't a promotional campaign and if we don't have financial support for marketing, publicity, outreach. Like, I can't do that by myself again. You didn't have any budget on this one for marketing and PA and everything? No, I mean, one of the reasons, our distributors strand releasing, and this film is much smaller than much of the films we do, they do, and also a little different than the type of films they do. They do a lot of European, international cinema, like Lucretia Martel or Sai Ming Liang, and they do a lot of Asian cinema. And they do a lot of gay cinema. And this was... Uh, None of those. <laughs> yeah. And I think that they were willing to take us on because both Scott and I knew the distributor well. And in many ways, I think he was he did us a very generous favor because he knew he wasn't going to make money on the film. But there really is no point in making a film if you want it to be out in the world beyond festivals, if you do not have money already to market the film. This is actually a nice bridge for my next question. I know you're working on a, something currently that you're going to tell us a little bit about if you want, but what I would like uh, to know is at what point did you start thinking again about a new project? During the making of A Woman Apart, were you still working on other projects or were you just full on on this one? And and then when did you start working on a new project and what did you pick? Well, I'm almost laughing about like, were you working on anything else? Because like there were literally no hours in the day that I could remotely be working on anything else. But my assumption all along was that I would be in this fantastic position because I had this other movie. I had a script that people thought was amazingly well-written about this bipolar photo archivist. I had been waiting a decade for it to be made. And so when do you actually have a situation as an independent filmmaker where they're like, hey, what's next? And you could literally physically hand the script to them and be like, here it is. So after the film premiered in the U.S. the summer after our Rotterdam premiere, I went to a residency in Cassis, actually, near Marseille, and my entire plan for the residency was to figure out, given what everything I had learned with The Woman Apart, how I would shoot this film. And what I realized going into that, so that was the summer before the election, before the November 2016 election, and I realized within like a week that this film was not relevant to the time period we were in. And I won't spend time, let's just leave it at that, that I was like, I can't make this movie. And so that was really devastating because I, I now that was the final walking away from that film, like that film is gone. So from there, I went right back into teaching and the whole, all of last year that I was teaching, 2016, 2017, I was traveling all over the world with the film. So I was teaching full-time and then going to India, going to Paris, going to Poland, going to places around the U.S., and there was just no time to work 
on a new project. So starting last summer, I started thinking about my interest in the actress Maria Schneider and how that had always been kind of something I thought about. So I started working with an intern in New York, and then through a screening in London, I met a young feminist film critic and editor of a film journal who also loved doing research, but who had studied at the Sorbonne. And so she was able to start doing French research with me on Maria Schneider, because there's not that much information about Maria. I mean, I guess for anybody who doesn't know her, she is best known for her role as the female protagonist in Last Tango in Paris. Although post Me Too, I think there's probably no one who doesn't know who she is. And I had always been interested in her as the first bisexual out actress in Hollywood, as somebody who even in the 70s was speaking quite articulately and assertively about the poverty of roles for women. I was interested in what she had gone through literally and both metaphorically on the set at Last Tango. And I I just always been intrigued by her. So I've been doing a ton of research on her, but really dragging my heels on committing to it being a certain form. And I'm surprised there hasn't been an article about this, like art, how do artists cope with new projects in the Trump era? Because I'm having a hard time really committing to something because my question is what really matters right now. Every time I hear a new plot synopsis for a film, I'm like, really? Like, that's really something that you can get behind right now. Like, you really, really care about that. I don't know if you know the artist and writer Austin Cleon. He did a talk recently at an event, I don't know, in, in Austin, Texas. And one of the things, I've been following him for, for, for many years now, and he's been very depressed, very depressed about uh, Trump's election. You can see it in his work. You can see it about the things he shares. He's, he's been having trouble finding, you know, as you said, like everything seems uh, futile, Uh, and that's one of the hardship of being an artist and, and we are lucky in being artists in countries that are uh, peaceful but I have friends who are artists in countries that are not peaceful and it's very very hard to f- to find ways to create without guilt when it's not about something deadly serious and, and one of the things that he said in his talk the last thing he said is that spend time on something that will outlast them and he said they will die too. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting because if you think it that way, maybe, um, maybe yes, you, you might not be working on something that uh, is directly related to the news, but if what you're doing is made with the care and intention and the need that is justified for it to outlast the rest of us, then it's, you know, it's worth it in a way. I mean, maybe it won't work, but if that's your intention to make something that matters, then, you know, it's easier to find a way to continue on a project that might be about a French actress and not about what's going on in America. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to say, I guess. Totally. And I mean, I think that the thing about the Maria Schneider project is, in a way, she's the poster child for actress exploitation. And by extension, given that we have a sexual predator as our president, there is obvious relevance, but I'm also 
a little bit battle wounded from the type of sexism I've encountered in the industry. And I know that the way this film would be most likely financed is if I focused on the moment in her life where she was beautiful and was traumatized and, you know, did a lot of drugs, set out, you know, had amazing outfits, looked really hot, you know, suicide attempt, like kind of a Janis Joplin film. And I don't want to do that. And so I was in Paris in November interviewing people, including her partner of 31 years. She, uh, Maria died in 2011. And I've, I felt even more committed that I do not want to exploit this woman for a sensational story. So right now what I'm doing, I mean, I'm looking at a whole wall of images of her. Um, I'm really trying to figure out what story I want to tell what would be the right form, accepting that the form may not be a narrative feature. And, but on the other hand, I should say, like, I would really, really love to right now direct somebody else's material, which is not something I've ever said I wanted to do. But I love the idea of being able to bounce off someone else's thing because I've spent my entire adult life generating my own content. Or on the other hand, go back to the gallery and museum system and do something that I have complete control over. But doing what I did with the woman apart, and I don't say this to be uninspiring, but more to be realistic is I feel like you've only got one of them in you. Like I really, I can't, this production model is not sustainable. And I'm sure you've heard that before in terms of American filmmaking. It's just not a sustainable model. Definitely. I mean, it's, um, Everybody starts with the same hopes. Most of us end up at the same point, having a film, but, you know, having uh, learned a lot and lost a lot along the way, including uh, maybe a bit of innocence. But um, it's a passage you have to... I don't know if you have to go through it, but in America, you know, it, it ha it's common. But I, I don't think it's something you can repeat or if you're repeating it, it means you might not have learned enough because then why would you do it now that you know what it is? I totally agree. And I mean, Ava DuVernay said that, like she was like, no one is going to finance your first film. But there's no way she would have made that same film multiple times. Like it's just, it's, 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 it's basically physically abusive. And it, it also means that it really slows down your ability to be creative because, you know, I didn't get to just make the film and put it out in the world. I had to keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it to get it seen. And it's only because now it's on VOD platforms, thanks to our distributor, which was amazing that they were able to sell it to Netflix and Showtime, that I feel like, okay, my job is done. But this is, you know, this is exactly three years later. I mean, the, from when it wrapped. Elizabeth, I want to thank you because uh, I, I, see, I know I could have continued many more hours. For me, it was extremely interesting talking to you and learning about your experience and having, uh, you know, all your wisdom and your, your uh, transparency as well. That's always uh, something I appreciate. All the guests are, are playing along, but I, I, I think it's important to say that uh, it's, it takes courage to tell things the way they are and not try to embellish them. But I think it's really, I mean, I'm an educator and I also believe in honesty and why not? 
Do you know what I mean? And I, I'll just say I really enjoy hearing about what you're encountering. I know so much less about European financing or any kind of production models. Um, I have a feeling this is something that I'm going to be learning a lot about. So it's, it's anything that people share about how to work overseas is really interesting to me as well. Surprisingly, it's been very hard actually to find um, filmmakers from other countries than the UK or America because I believe because the European system is uh, made so much on grants and you know a very complicated uh, financial I don't know if schemes is the right word but you know there's all this partnership and co-producing and points and and so the indie filmmaking in uh, Europe does not really exist the same way it does in America because it's almost impossible if you just end up doing your own movie for 100,000 euros to find a distributor because there's I mean, it's just a very close system. I hope one day I'll have uh, some uh, European filmmakers that are will be willing to share their uh, wisdom and stories. But in the meantime, um, I want to thank you. I want to say that everything you've mentioned uh, and all the relevant links will be on the, the website with the, your episode, if people want to check. Do you want to share uh, the socials or what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Oh, absolutely. By email, it's just my name, Elizabeth Subern at Gmail. And so same, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter with my own name. My blog is a woman apart, uh, .tumblr.com. And that, you know, you can see at the website, a woman apart.com, you can see our trailer. Thank you again. I'm looking forward to seeing what's um, going to happen with your next project. Likewise, I can't wait to see your film. Good luck with that. Thank you. This episode was produced and edited by me, Nathalie Sejean. The music was created by French artist Soul of Bear. You can discover their techno universe on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash soulofbear. You can find all the show notes along with all the previous episodes on mentorless.com slash podcast. It is also the place where you can submit your story. So if you completed a creative project that taught you unique lessons and you'd like to share, go to mentorless.com slash podcast. Click on the form at the bottom of the page and submit your story. Thank you so much for sticking around until the end. I'll see you in two weeks for our next episode. <music>